Our most gracious God, we thank you for your word. And none of us, Lord, can stand before it and say we're innocent on our own. None of us can stand up to your word, the demands that your word places on us, on our conscience. And so we thank you that Jesus paid the price, that Jesus fulfilled the demands of your word. And my prayer today, Lord, is that we would see that. We would see that Jesus is uniquely qualified to be our Savior and that we would humbly submit ourselves to him because of what he has done for us. So use this time that Christ would be glorified and that we would be convicted and strengthened in our walk with him. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, today we will be continuing our study in the gospel according to John. So if you have your Bibles with you, please turn to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 43 to 51 today. Uh, this will be the 11th sermon in, uh, in just chapter 1, if you can believe that. I, I never would have believed that we'd have 11 sermons in the first chapter, but it's been so rich. I hope it's blessed you as much as it's blessed me to, to study through it. You know, this past week I, was, uh, I watched an interview, or part of an interview, uh, and I know that some of you did too, with a, a conservative pundit uh, named Ben Shapiro, uh, an interview that he did with a Roman Catholic priest. And one of the questions that Mr. Shapiro asked the priest was this. Uh, he, he said, quote, What's the Catholic view on who gets into heaven and who doesn't? I feel like I lead a pretty good life, a very religiously based life, in which I try to keep not just the Ten Commandments, but a solid 603 commandments as well. End quote. Now, if you have ever wondered why the Protestant Reformation is the most important movement in the history of the church, uh, consider the answer of the priest, who responded by saying this. He said, well, Vatican II clearly teaches that someone outside the explicit Christian faith can be saved. We'll just end there. See, for, for the Roman Catholics, Scripture and tradition are on the same level, or so they say. But really, what's he giving preference to here? Tradition. There's no way to put something up with Scripture, make it equal in authority to Scripture, without making Scripture actually subservient to that tradition, which is exactly what this Roman Catholic priest did. He went on to say that one can be saved by following their conscience sincerely. Whatever that means. I, I think that's, a, that's his way of saying just follow your heart, but I'm not exactly sure. But what Scripture teaches about the conscience is not that following your conscience can save you. Rather, Scripture teaches that your conscience actually condemns you. Because we all act in a way other than our conscience directs us. That's Romans chapter 2. Now, one of the things that offends people about Christianity, I, I get it, is that it is an exclusive religion. And when I say that, I mean that it sets definitive parameters on how a person must be saved. Jesus explicitly stated that no one comes to the Father but through him, and that the way we enter into a saving relationship with Jesus is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. To say that one can be saved by following their conscience is essentially to spit on the grave of every missionary who has given their life, who has been martyred on the mission field for the sake of bringing the gospel to people who have never heard the gospel. And while I'm, I'm sure that it wasn't Ben Shapiro's intention to do so, it was actually interesting because by interviewing this priest only a week or two after he interviewed John MacArthur, um, it clearly demonstrates the difference between Christianity and Catholicism and every other religion on the planet. Now, what we need to understand is while there is only one way to heaven, of course that's through faith in Christ, there are many ways to Christ. And we could demonstrate that really easily, very, very simply and plainly, if we wanted to, if each one of us were to take turns coming up here and spending five minutes talking about our testimonies. 
what we would discover is that each one of us had some unique sense, you know, unique uh, set of circumstances in our lives at the time that we came to Christ. Some people will say that they, you know, they grew up uh, not going to church, but that eventually they, they hit rock bottom. And uh, at that point, somebody shared the gospel with them and they were saved. They had a miraculous conversion experience at that point. Other, other people will say uh, that they, they don't ever remember having a specific moment in which they came to saving faith in Christ, but that they were raised in a Christian household. And so as far back as they can remember, they've believed in Jesus because in their family, church attendance was regular. And they've believed in Jesus for as long as they can remember. So the differences of each person's story of coming to faith in Christ attest to the fact that while Christ is the only way to heaven. There are countless ways in which people come to Christ. People come to faith in Christ. One person comes to faith in Christ in the midst of a season or a moment of despair. Another comes in a a sudden moment of joy. Another comes very gradually. Another comes very suddenly, very quickly. And as we've been studying a section of the gospel according to John, which deals heavily with people coming to Christ, heavily with the issue of evangelism, the subject of evangelism, it's very important that we understand this, that people come to Christ differently. Why is that so important for us to realize? Because we need to know that our job is simply to sow seeds. Now, we want to do it with a winsome spirit, yes. We want to do it graciously, yes. But we need to share the good news of Jesus Christ with our neighbors. And we must be able to leave the results in God's hands. If we understand that people come to Christ very differently, then we won't expect a cookie-cutter response to our evangelism. So as we continue in our study of the gospel according to John, we should remember that there are now, at this point, uh, four people in the text, four people who have come to saving faith in Christ so far. There's, first of all, John the Baptist, who came to faith in Christ when he baptized Christ, and he heard the voice of the Father from heaven saying, this is my Son in whom I'm well pleased, and he saw the Spirit uh, descend upon Christ like a dove and remain on him. Uh, So that was his testimony, right? That, that, That was when he came to faith. But then his testimony Uh, when he shared it with his disciples, identifying Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, that testimony influenced John the Apostle and Andrew to believe in and to follow Jesus. And then we saw Andrew uh, immediately went and found his brother Peter to tell him that they had found the Messiah. So the first two disciples, Andrew and John, came to Jesus as a result of faithful preaching, right? John the Baptist preaching in the wilderness. That's what resulted in uh, Andrew and John following Jesus. And then the third, Simon Peter, he came as a result of personal evangelism when Andrew went and found his brother Peter. So The passage that we'll be looking at today is John chapter 1, verses 43 to 51. And in this passage, what we're going to see is that there will be two more disciples uh, added, and they too will have their own unique experiences. See, these are all very different individuals, and they all have very different, unique testimonies of how they come to Christ, but they are all like us, they are all united by Christ into one magnificent, wonderful salvation. And the point of the passage that we'll be looking at today is that because of who he is and because of what he has done, Jesus, and only Jesus, is worthy of our fullest devotion, our service, and our witness. So we'll start with uh, verses 43 and 44 of John chapter 1, if you've got your Bibles open. Verses 43 and 44, we read, The next day, this is the day after uh, Simon Peter uh, comes to Christ. The next day, he, Jesus, purposed to go into Galilee, and he found Philip. And Jesus said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida of the city of Andrew and Peter. So here's the next disciple, The fourth disciple and the fifth person to believe in Jesus now was a man by the name of Philip. 
And his story, his testimony, is really pretty simple. Uh, Jesus tells him, follow me, and he does. And that's the end. It's as simple as that. Can you imagine Philip being asked to, to stand before a, a church congregation and to, to share his personal testimony? And so he gets up and he stands before the congregation and he says, Jesus told me to follow him. And I did. The end. It's as simple as that. And, it, and that might seem actually very unspectacular to us. That might seem very unimpressive or even maybe bland to us because it only seems like such a simple thing. It seems like nothing really incredible happened here, but it only seems that way because we tend to be, in our flesh, we tend to be so drawn, so enamored with the spectacular and the dramatic, but there is nothing, there is nothing unspectacular. There is nothing bland about following Jesus We can really only speculate about what was going on in Philip's life at the time. We can only speculate about what was maybe going through his mind as Jesus walked by. But one thing we can be very sure of is that Jesus was walking by specifically and intentionally for the sake of calling Philip to follow him. Because Jesus didn't just randomly choose his disciples. He wasn't just going on a random path and, oh, that guy looks, uh, looks like he'd be a great speaker or that guy looks like he's super talented, so, so I'll, I'll bring him along with me. No, Jesus did not randomly choose his disciples. There was actually nothing random about the selection process. How were they chosen? They were specifically chosen by God the Father. When we read Jesus' beautiful, beautiful high priestly prayer, In John chapter 17, we see Jesus pray to the Father for the disciples. And he says this in uh, verse 6, John 17. He says, I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours and you gave them to me. So these are men who were determined by the Father, who were selected by the Father to be Jesus' disciples and the Father gave them to Jesus. You see what I'm saying? Only sin could make us possibly think that there is nothing unspectacular about Jesus calling Philip to follow him. And Christ only speaks two words to him. Two words. And Philip leaves everything he has ever loved or lived for behind to follow the Messiah, to follow Jesus. That is is radical. That is spectacular. It's exciting. It should inspire us. But it also reminds us of something that is very important, especially if you're going to go forth into the world bearing witness to Christ. There's something very valuable for us to see here, and that is this reminds us that Christ is the good shepherd. And that his sheep hear his voice. Jesus says in John 10, 27, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. This is one of the great confidences we can have whenever we are talking about Jesus, sharing the good news with our neighbors. Christ's sheep hear his voice. Now you might ask, well, okay, but I'm the one talking. I'm the one talking about Jesus, so aren't they hearing my voice when I witness? And that's a good question, and the answer is that if the person isn't one of Christ's sheep, then your voice is what they hear, and they ignore you. But if they are Christ's sheep, they hear his voice when you witness. And I would expect you to say, prove it. I wouldn't expect anything less. In Romans chapter 10, we read the great apostolic charge to the church to go out and preach the gospel. We'll start with verse 9, Romans 10, 9, uh, where we read that if you confess with your mouth 
Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. Verse 12, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. Verse 13, for whoever will call on the the name of the Lord will be saved. That's verses 9 to 13. And up until this point, it really doesn't matter what translation you're looking at because they all, all the orthodox translations say essentially the same thing in verses 9 to 13. But this brings us to verse 14 where there is such a considerable difference between translations, it actually boggles my mind that so many translations overlook this one seemingly small but extremely significant difference. Uh, Take the ESV, for example, which uh, when I'm reading the Bible for myself is actually my favorite translation. It's a perfectly fine translation, but there is a difference between the ESV and the NASB that I want to draw our attention to. So let's look at what the ESV says for verse 14. It says, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard. And how are they to hear without someone preaching? The focus of our attention here should be on that word of. And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? But let's hold that up to the NASB. And and actually, if you're reading the ESV, you'll see that there's a note there that says that there is a word that they think maybe should have been included. But, so let's hold that up to the NASB, which reads, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? Whom they have not heard. And how will they hear without a preacher? Do you see what's missing? The word of isn't in there. And we should all recognize that there is an immense difference between hearing of Jesus and hearing Jesus. Now, you, you might wonder, why, why did the NASB translators not put the word of in there? And the answer is simple. It's because the word of actually isn't there in the Greek, in the original language. So people need to hear of Christ. Absolutely. No question about that. But just as important, for the sake of evangelism, his sheep need to hear his voice, and they hear his voice in the preaching of the word. And they follow him. And that's what we see here with Philip. Jesus says, follow me. And Philip leaves everything in his life behind to follow the good shepherd. When Christ calls someone, friends, he calls them with authority. He never presents it as an option. He never says, if you feel like following me, why don't you? He never says that. It's an instruction. It's imperative. Follow me. Think of the way Simon Peter came to Christ. It shows Jesus' authority. Andrew goes and and, and gets Simon and he brings him to Jesus and the first thing Jesus says to him is, yeah, I know know, you've always gone by Simon, but from now on, your name's going to be Peter. Now, I don't know about you, but can you imagine uh, someone saying that to you the first time you meet them? You know, you've always gone by Kurt, or you've always gone by Craig, or you've always gone by Joan, but from now on, I'm, I'm going to call you this. And you'd think, what? By, by what authority would you change my name? And the answer here is the one to whom all authority on heaven and earth has been given. And that reminds us that because of who he is and because of what he has done, Jesus is worthy of our fullest devotion, service, and witness. So Philip's testimony is unique, like everybody else's. It's unique. Maybe Jesus called him this way, just saying, follow me, uh, because Philip was shy or timid. Uh, We don't know exactly why Jesus used this approach to call him, but the beautiful thing about the differences that the disciples have is that it all demonstrates that Jesus' sheep hear his voice, and he knows them, and they follow him. 
He knows their personalities. He knows who they are. He knows their desires. He sees the depths of their hearts. He knows their strengths. He knows their weaknesses. And he reaches out and he ministers to them based on his intimate knowledge of who they are. His intimate knowledge that he has of each one of his sheep. Do you see the beauty of that? This is so, so amazing. He knows each single one of his sheep. And if you have placed saving faith in Jesus, you need to know that he knows you better than you even know yourself. He knows you better than you will ever know yourself. And thus he can lead you and he can minister to your soul as if there wasn't another soul that he had to take care of. He can give individual care to you like nobody else can. He knows your hurts. He knows your concerns. He knows what you're worried about. He knows what you lose sleep about at night. And they matter to him. Those things matter to him. He wants to comfort you in every situation. And so you can come to him in his word and find comfort and strength and respite and refuge for your soul. Have you ever had one of those Sundays, or or have you ever listened to one of those sermons where it seems like the passage at hand or the message at hand uh, is just about you, as if I have followed you around all week and I knew exactly what you were going through, and so the sermon is actually aimed right at you? Have you ever had one of those weeks? I know know I've had that happen. I know people have come up to me and said, you know, "This this is me that you were preaching about today. How does that happen? Why does that happen? It's because the good shepherd loves you and he cares for your soul and he ministers to you in this way. And this is actually one of the good reasons that you should come to church every single week, isn't it? It's also a good reason to regularly be digging into the word of God, isn't it? See, I I don't know everything that's going on in your life. I don't know what's making you lose sleep at night. But Jesus does. Jesus does. And so he ministers to you, sometimes in very, very specific, very personal ways in the preaching and in the study of his word. Isn't that the most amazing thing? It's because he loves you. It's because he wants to address something specific in your life that that I probably don't even know about. It's amazing. But as different as, as Philip's testimony is, It's the same as every other legitimate Christian's testimony in the sense that it involved putting faith, faith that acts in Jesus and following after him. We too are called to follow him, to learn from him, to submit to the will of the Father the way that he did, to learn to become more and more like him, to grow in his likeness. And that means being changed. That means being transformed. So I ask you today, is that what you want? Is that what you want? That's what every disciple of Jesus wants. Is that what you want? Do you want to be changed? Do you want him to minister to the depths of your soul? Are you willing to submit to the will of God, even if it means leaving things in life behind? that are causing you to sin or that are preventing you from following Jesus. If that's you, then follow Jesus. Learn to become more like him. Learn to submit to the will of the Father the way that he did. Grow in holiness. You can't grow in holiness without becoming more like Jesus. There's no other way to become, to to grow in holiness than to follow Jesus. And if that's you, I implore you to keep going to keep following, to keep fighting the flesh, keep fighting the battle with the devil and the world and the flesh, that Christ would be magnified in your life and you would grow in his likeness as he ministers to you regularly through the preaching and the study of his word. Let's continue. Verses 45 and 46. We read, Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, 
Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. This is just so fascinating to me. Uh, because it would seem like the, the, the amount of time uh, that has passed here, that, that Philip has been following him, it, it would seem to have been uh, at least a few days Because Philip demonstrates that he is acutely aware of exactly who Jesus is already. But the reality is that this is the same day. This is the same day. I mean, what have we been seeing as we've been going through uh, the the historical narrative text of, of John? We've been seeing that the days are distinguished by the next day, the next day, right? We, we keep seeing that because there are seven days that lead up to his public ministry in John's, uh, in John's gospel testimony. But we also see Philip answering Nathaniel the same way that Jesus had answered Andrew and John when they hesitated to follow Jesus. Nathaniel makes a snarky remark. Can anything good come from Nazareth? And Philip doesn't argue with him. He, he, doesn't, he doesn't take up the mantle, to, you know, pick up his sword and shield, and, so to speak, and, and say, okay, well, let's go to war about this. He doesn't give a long, drawn-out response or an explanation or a justification. No, he just says, come and see. Come and see. So simple. And yet, what it does is it actually puts the proverbial ball right back in Nathaniel's court. So what's interesting is, is that we know from later on in the gospel according to John that Nathaniel is from Cana, which was a town that uh, had something of a rivalry with Nazareth. So maybe Nathaniel isn't being playful here. Maybe he's not trying to be funny here. He probably actually really didn't like people from Nazareth. But Philip disarms him so quickly, just boom, three words spoken Tenderly, I have no doubt, spoken graciously and, and winsomely, but authoritatively as well. It, it's not presented as a request or as an option. It's imperative. Come and see. Now, before we move on from this, we should see just the, the rich, rich, deep theology in what Philip says. He refers to Jesus as him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote. In other words, Philip is saying, we have found the one to whom all of the Old Testament directs us to. All of the Old Testament points to. We found him. And anybody who's honest with the Old Testament text will realize that there are literally hundreds and hundreds of prophecies about the Messiah throughout the Old Testament. There were even prophecies that pointed to the specific day that Jesus would enter into Jerusalem. So the tragedy for somebody like Ben Shapiro or or for any uh, anybody who's in Judaism today is that if Jesus was not the Messiah, there is no Messiah because there was a specific day that was prophesied. And so they're hoping and they're waiting for something that has actually already taken place 2,000 years ago. But Philip realized that this was him. This was the Messiah, the Ancient of Days, the Son of Man from Daniel chapter 7, who was to come to whom all of the Old Testament points, starting actually in Genesis 3.15, right? When God promised that the seed of the woman would crush the serpent's head. And within a day of encountering and following Jesus, Philip learns that the greatest form of philanthropy is to invite your fellow man to follow Jesus. That is the most loving thing you can do for your neighbor. If it's true that there is no greater love than this, that a man would lay down his life for his friends, the only love that even comes close to that in comparison is a love that drives us to tell our fellow man to follow him who laid down his life for his friends in order that all who repent and believe in him will be saved from the penalty of sin and someday they will be saved from the presence of sin. They'll be saved from the power of sin. There's there's no reason not to invite somebody to do it if you love them the way that you should. 
But we should also see that Philip's witness wasn't exactly accurate. He had a couple minor errors in there because Jesus wasn't technically Joseph's son, but Jesus did come from Joseph's house. He probably would have been referred to as Yeshua bar Yosef, uh, but he wasn't Joseph's biological son. John Calvin uh, points this out as an inaccurate witness since Jesus Number one, wasn't uh, Joseph's biological son. And number two, Jesus technically wasn't a native of Nazareth. He had been born in Bethlehem. But Calvin points out that even if Philip did make a couple mistakes here, a couple minor details, uh, remember he's only been following Jesus this one day, uh, but it should actually encourage us to see that because it shows that God can even use a flawed witness to draw people to Christ. I don't know about you, but that, that encourages me because my witness is flawed. I might get details here and there, minor details wrong, but God can use a flawed witness. So again, all of this reminds us that Jesus' sheep hear his voice, and they follow him. And it reminds us that because of who he is and because of what he has done, fulfilling prophecy, if nothing else, Jesus is worthy of our fullest devotion, service, and witness. There's another point to be mindful of here, and that's to recognize and perhaps even imitate as much as possible, as much as we, we can in our daily conversation, the response of Philip to Nathaniel. I don't know if Philip even realized how wise his response was. But the wisest thing that we can do when somebody raises an objection to coming to Christ is to allow Christ himself to do the work of persuasion. And that doesn't mean that we should not contend for the faith. We should. But we should contend for the faith without being contentious. Isn't that an interesting paradigm? That is, you know, we don't want to become argumentative. We don't want to become bickersome, right? Because it's, it's not about just winning for us, is it? When we evangelize, it's not about winning an argument or, or whatever. No, it's about being obedient to Christ and loving our neighbor. So it's about loving our God, loving God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength and loving our neighbor as much as we love ourselves. That's what love drives us to do. It's about being obedient and so the simple answer, come and see, must be seen as the essence of all good witnessing. We sow the seed, and we leave the results in the hands of God. There is a point when we should contend for the faith, in which we should, as Peter instructs, sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. 1 Peter 3.15. But there also comes a point at which we must realize that we've done what we can do and only Christ can do the rest. Only Christ can win them. And there comes a point when it's just unwise to become further involved in the conversation because it's becoming more and more argumentative or, or whatever, quarrelsome. But there comes a point where all we do is get in the way. So ultimately, we can't rely on cookie-cutter evangelism where it's always the same and you always have the same result. We can't rely on evangelistic or, or apologetic uh, arguments or techniques for somebody to be one for Christ. But let us remember that God can use a simple come and see. Remember how I said that Jesus knows how to reach and, and minister to each one of us on an individual level? Watch how he handles Nathaniel. This is really one of the most beautiful encounters that Jesus has. Let's look at verses 47 to 49. We read, Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered and said to him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. It's interesting 
that Jesus doesn't even wait for Nathaniel to arrive. He sees Nathaniel coming to him, and, and from a distance, he says, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. There's actually a lot of irony in what he says that, that's very easy to miss here. Remember that the patriarch Jacob, also known as Israel, uh, was the line through which the nation of ethnic Israel descended. But Israel's name at his birth was Jacob, which means one who deceives, cheater, schemer. But I don't think Jesus is being snarky here. Maybe he's been being a little bit playful, but he's prying open the depths of Nathaniel's heart so that Nathaniel could see that what Philip had said about Jesus being the one to whom the Old Testament points, was true. But you see the, the play on words there? An Israelite, somebody from Jacob, the swindler, the cheater, in whom there's no deceit. So he's saying that he's very different from all the other people of Israel in a roundabout way. Now, Nathaniel initially tries to challenge the idea that Jesus even knows the first thing about him. How, how do you know me, he asked, which is a really interesting question. And it's met with an absolutely fascinating answer. Jesus says, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And Nathaniel, look at his response. He immediately responds in this rock-solid, strong, immense faith in Christ. And given his response, we should understand that Nathaniel realizes that there is absolutely no physical way that Jesus could have possibly seen him underneath the fig tree unless Jesus is God incarnate. Think about it. Why would Jesus have been watching Nathanael when it was Philip who went and found Nathanael and brought him to Christ? So Jesus reveals here that he has a knowledge, an omniscience, an all-knowingness about him that only God himself could possibly have. And so Nathanael is immediately confronted by the reality that he is standing before the one who knows the depths and the inward thoughts of the heart. We're talking about Jesus being omniscient here, an attribute that only God himself has. So see, he wasn't there physically, but he didn't need to be there physically to see in an omniscient sense. Friends, do you know that Jesus, our good shepherd, sees the depths of your hearts as well? Do you realize he knows exactly how to reach you? He knows exactly how to minister to you. He knows exactly what you need. He knows how to transform you better than you know yourself. And just as Jesus knows the thoughts and the intentions of Nathaniel's heart, let us not forget that the Scriptures themselves are living and active and, according to Hebrews 4.12, able to judge or to discern the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The Scriptures... Do the same thing that Jesus did with Nathaniel. They do for us what, the scriptures, uh, what Jesus did with Nathaniel. The scriptures first show us the truth. They show us that we fail to live up to what God demands of us, of every single one of us. They're like a mirror in that sense that reflects how completely stained by sin everything about us is. Every single thought, every word, every deed. It shows us that we ourselves cannot fulfill the demands of God's law and that if all we have is our best effort to hope in, sorry, Ben Shapiro, but we would be without hope. We would be lost. But a second purpose of the Scripture is that it's a tutor that points us to Christ. It's a guide, a teacher that says this is the only way you must go this way. See, when we see our, our own inability to do what God demands, when we see the way that God instructed His people to offer sacrifices, we see in Christ the perfect once and for all sacrifice, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of all who will in faith call on Him and be saved. Anyone who presents their heart to Jesus the same way that Nathaniel did, 
honestly, without deceit, willing to accept the truth about our sin and our need for a perfect substitute to atone for our sin, the Word of God will reveal Jesus as that Savior. Jesus knows you. Jesus knows you. He sees the depths of your heart. So it's, it's pointless and it's, it's a waste of time and energy to try to run and hide from him. You can't put on a performance that's going to impress him. He sees beyond all that. He sees right through it. All you can do is come to him just as you are, realizing that he already knows where you are. Which again reminds us that because of who he is and because of what he has done, Jesus and only Jesus is worthy of our fullest devotion, service, and worship, and witness. All of these are legitimate reasons to come to Jesus and to follow him, to repent and to put all of your trust for salvation in him alone. But they wouldn't be as convincing or as crucially important for us to see and to understand if there was some other way. If if there was another way for them to be saved, then it wouldn't be so important for us to see that there are so many good reasons to come to Christ. There is not. There is no other way to Christ but through faith. There is no other way to be reconciled to God but through Christ. And there is no other way to come to Christ but through faith. And so we have to see that in addition to all the things that we've seen about Jesus today, we also must see that Jesus is the only mediator between holy God and fallen sinner. Let's look at verses 50 and 51. Jesus answered and said to him, Because I said to you that I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see the heavens opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. The first thing that we should see here is that Jesus does note that him seeing Nathanael under the fig tree was miraculous. It it was something that was spectacular. Uh, There was something supernatural about it. Whatever the circumstances are, or were. It was supernatural. And it was more than enough to persuade Nathaniel to make a strong profession of faith in Christ and to leave everything behind to follow Jesus. But Jesus makes a promise to Nathaniel here that he will see things that are more amazing than even that. So if there wasn't something amazing about it, then this would be a meaningless statement to say you'll see things more amazing than that. He says, you will see the heavens opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. By the way, this is a not-so-subtle reference back to Jacob slash Israel again. You'll recall from, I don't know, a year, year and a half ago, uh, when we were studying Genesis, that there came a time in Jacob's life when he had double-crossed his brother Esau for the last time, and Esau finally uh, vowed to kill Jacob. And this sent Jacob running for his life out into the wilderness to go and, and live with his uncle. But as he laid out under the open sky on that first night on his journey with nothing but a rock to, to rest his head on, God gave him a vision. We read in Genesis twenty-eight twelve, He had a dream, and behold, a ladder was set on the earth with its top reaching to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And in this dream, God promised to be with Jacob. He promised to provide for Jacob and to bless Jacob. And when Jacob finally awoke, he said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I didn't know it. That's verse 16. Then we read, He was afraid and said, How awesome is this place. There is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So Jacob rose early in the morning and took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up as a pillar and poured oil on its top. He called the name, he called the name of that place Bethel. And so as Jesus says these words to Nathanael, he's saying he is that ladder that bridges heaven and earth. 
He is the better Bethel, the better house of God. He is the bridge between heaven and earth. He is the only mediator between holy God and sinful man. The only ladder, the only bridge, the only mediator. But what we have to see here is that the you in verse 51, the you is plural. It's not singular. It's plural. This is addressed to everybody who hears the voice of the good shepherd calling them to follow him. Friends, when we feel like we've found Jesus, one of the things that we should see in all of this that we've seen in chapter 1 so far as, as Jesus is gathering up his disciples is that, yes, we find Jesus, but really it's him who found us first. The word that we see over and over through this passage is found. Andrew ran and found Simon, telling him, we have found the Messiah. Jesus found Philip. Philip found Nathanael, telling him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote. Found, 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 found. Jesus is finding his disciples. It was really him who was finding them. It seems like they're the ones who found him. He's the one who found them because the disciples were a gift to Jesus by the Father. And even though it looked like they were the ones making the decisions to follow Jesus here, Jesus would go on to say later in John's testimony, you did not choose me, but I chose you. That's not how it looked on the surface, but that's the reality of it. So I ask you this. Like these men who are leaving behind everything else that they loved and lived for. Will you forsake everything in life to follow Jesus? Will you follow him no matter what it might cost you in life? Like Nathaniel, consider his profession of faith. Like Nathaniel, will you see Jesus as your rabbi, as your teacher? Will you see him as God incarnate? Will you see him as your king? That is, as your Lord, the one who has all authority over your life, over everything about your life. If you have found him worthy of such sacrifice, what great comfort and what great assurance we have in realizing that it was he who loved you, and it was he who sought you, and it was he who found you first. And what gracious comfort there is in knowing that in Christ, He Himself and all the angels of heaven are at His disposal to protect you, to provide for you, to to bless you, to comfort you, to care for you, for you specifically, individually, as if you were the only sheep in the Good Shepherd's care. If you hear the voice of the Good Shepherd and you follow Him, All the promises and all the blessings of heaven are yours. That's amazing. If you think about what we we gain in Christ, what we lose doesn't compare to what we gain. But while we gain so much, let us never, ever hoard our blessings keeping them to ourselves because of who he is and because of what he has done. Jesus and only Jesus is worthy of our fullest devotion, our service, and our witness. Our witness. So let us spread these blessings that we have in Christ by reaching out to our fellow man because that's what love for our neighbor does. Knowing that all who come to Christ will come in different ways. So let us be wise and let us be patient and gracious, but let us also remember that his sheep will hear his voice. For he comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. Let's pray. Our most gracious Father, we thank you so much that Christ was sent to die for sinners. And we confess to you in the silence of our hearts that we 
constantly sin against you. That we have never loved you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength and loved our neighbor as ourselves. But Jesus did. Jesus did. Though we were enemies, while we were still enemies, he laid down his life for us. Taking our sins upon himself and clothing us in his robes of righteousness. Most gracious Father, thank you for this amazing gift of salvation and all the blessings that we have in Christ because of what he did and because of who he is. We pray, Lord, that you would give us courage and wisdom and patience as we bring this message to the world. We pray, Lord, that we would be a light in the darkness, not because of our own goodness, not because of anything inherent in ourselves, but because Jesus himself has taken up residence in us, and he shines through us in the darkness. May our testimony be bold, wise, And we pray, Lord, that it would bear much fruit, that Christ would be glorified, not only in our lives, but in the lives of those who are yet to follow. In Jesus' name, amen. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcasts.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us, and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today and keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.